Let's turn together now to Paul's letter to Philippians and chapter 1, and we can read at verse 9. Philippians 1 and at verse number 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God and so on. So continue to look at learning lessons from the prayers of Paul. Uh, we know that prayer is at the very center of the life of the people of God. It's at the very center of the life of the church of God in the world. Uh, and in many ways down through the history of the people of God, prayer and the promises of God have worked together in the experience of the people of God as they wait for God's salvation. And it is that prayerful waiting for the promises of God that has brought blessing to the people of God when God fulfills his promises. Prayer is a waiting upon God, it's a dependence upon God, and it's waiting and praying for God to take action. Uh, And here, as we read this letter, we know something of the relationship between Paul and this church in Philippi, and we see that from Acts chapter 16. We are familiar perhaps with the the call that Paul received, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so he responded to that call, and he went to preach the gospel in Philippi, and in chapter 16 we read the story of Lydia, whose heart God opened, and we read the story of the Philippian jailer. And so Paul is at the very beginnings of this church. And when you read through this letter, a lot of the the emotion connected with that close relationship at the very beginning of the experience of of the church comes through the way in which he writes about them. He writes about them as those concerning whom he prays, and he does so with joy, because he holds them all in his heart and because he yearns for them with the affection of Jesus Christ. He has a close, loving relationship with this church. And perhaps this letter stands out in the New Testament as a church to which Paul writes and there is little that he needs to correct. But when he does need to correct, he will do so. And we'll read through the letter, and there are issues like disunity, there are issues like suffering for their faith, there are issues like understanding uh, what it means to be saved, and and that apart from the Old Testament circumcision, they have to learn uh, that they have to be on their guard about falling into all of these traps. And especially, he wants them to understand that as citizens of Rome, who are suffering for the gospel, that they are in the first place citizens of heaven. And that's how he closes chapter number three. And so tonight we want to look at this prayer of Paul for this people in Philippi and see the way in which he addresses them and recognizes where they are at and recognizes also where they need to be. 
And for all of us, when we pray, we realize that, that we need to be somewhere else. And we're praying for, for God to bring us on in our faith to that place where we should be and to continue our growth, as it were, as the people of God. And so to think of this prayer and to see it as a prayer for life as a citizen of heaven. We are the children of God. We are the people of God. We are the citizens of heaven. How should we live our lives? What does this prayer tell us about living as citizens of heaven? When the first, see, first of all, that we have a prayer for their development. And their development is with regard to something that's at the very heart, at the very beginnings of the gospel that brings salvation to us. In verse number 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And love is at the very center of the character of God. It's at the very center of the revelation of God in the Bible. It's at the very center of the revelation of God with regard to sending his Son. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. God's heart is a loving heart. His relationship with us is one of love. He has moved from that love and because of that love to reach us where we are and to bring about a change in our experience through salvation itself so that we may sense the well-being that only he can give. His love works in and through the gospel, through the person of the Son of God, where John tells us in 1 John 4, this is love that God sent his Son into the world. There is God's love for us. And of course, there is our response of love to God. We love, says John in, in, in 1 John 3, we, we love because he first loved us in 1 John 4. Our response to God's love is to love him in return. And there is that heartfelt sense of engaging with God, with all of the emotions of love, which he has planted as a seed in our hearts, and which begins to take over our lives in the sense that we respond to him and we love him in return. And we saw that one of the evidences of our love for God is our love for the people of God. And the measure of our love for God is very often the love that we have for the people of God. And that love, Paul is praying for them, that it will abound more and more. He wants their love to be present in abundance. He wants their love to be extravagant. He wants their love to be out of the ordinary. He wants their love to be extraordinary. And he wants their love to develop to that stage because it hasn't yet reached that stage. And because they, are, they have the love of God poured out into their hearts, the love of God that is extraordinary, that captures our attention, because that is the love that they have in their hearts. Their own love should rise up to show these same characteristics, to be extraordinary in the world in which they live. 
Their love is to be extravagant more and more, as if there's an opening of the floodgates and, and there is the, the, the river of, of God's love pouring out from their hearts more and more, filling our own lives and overflowing into the world in which we live. And any prayer for the, the people of God will, will, will have that kind of desire in it, that when we come to, to pray for each other, that we do pray that God's love will be in our hearts and that God's love would work in our lives and that it would grow more and more. And kingdom life is based on the love of God and is evident in the lives of the people of God. But the interesting thing here with regard to the extravagance of their love is that he is not praying that their love will grow in their emotions or their affections for other people or their emotions or affections for God himself or for the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants their love to grow in a particular way. And he does so by drawing our attention to what this development means. That it will abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment or in knowledge and all discernment. Their development is going to be in this area of loving. He's taking them away from their affections and their emotions and he's placing their development firmly in the sphere of their intellect and of the way in which they understand the love of God. That they will grow in knowledge. That knowledge that is an intense awareness and an intense experience of the knowledge that comes with the grace of God, with the salvation that the Spirit of God brings. And when God so works in our lives, he gives to us the felt experience of what we know in our minds. And suddenly, the truths that we know in our minds, they become alive in our hearts. We have the knowledge of God. God promised that in Jeremiah chapter 31, where he's going to make a new covenant, where he's going to write his laws in their minds and in their hearts. And then he says, all shall know me. There will be no need for people to teach one another in this sense, because all will know me. And it's the knowledge of this relationship with God that comes in the day of our conversion into the experience of the Word of God and of God's gracious salvation. He wants their, their knowledge of that to increase more and more. And if we have the, the, the Spirit of God in our hearts tonight, the Spirit that Jesus promised that would lead them into all truth, that would teach them all things, then we have this prayer for ourselves and we have it for one another, praying that together we will grow and increase in this very felt experience of God's word in our salvation. That there will be that love abounding in knowledge. And because of the way in which he says that, he is raising 
the importance of knowing and placing loving in the context of, of our, our understanding of the gospel. And we can express love, and, and if, if we're not expressing that love with the knowledge, with, with the package of information that speaks of the ingredients of this love and how this love is going to work, then our expression of love will not be in accordance with the character of God and will not be in accordance with the word of God. Love must learn to find expression within the boundaries of the word of God and from there to to live life. And that knowledge, so that it will be with knowledge and all discernment. The ability to make the right choices. In knowledge, I have everything packaged in my mind. I am able, because of the grace of God, to have the logic of the the gospel worked out in my mind. But Paul wants their their knowledge to be accompanied with the discernment, that which enables them to take the knowledge that they have and to have that knowledge impacting upon their everyday lives in their decision-making process. And, of course, it goes without saying that for the child of God, for those who are the people of faith and belong to the community of faith, it goes without saying that we know the difference between right and wrong. He doesn't need to pray for that. He doesn't need to pray that they will not sin and they will stay away from particular sins. That is a given If we understand the gospel, we understand the law of God and we love the law of God and we hate sin. But he is praying that they will be filled with a sense of being able to choose the right things in every aspect of life, making right choices. He explains that further in in chapter 10, but, but, but we're coming to that. But their development is in order that they may make the right decisions in life. And the decisions that they are going to make in life are the decisions that will work out in a life of devotion to God, uh, holy living, a life that's lived in accordance with the word of God. And we, we, we know ourselves that our failing so often comes from our wrong choices, our decision-making, what we choose from day to day. The the regrets that we have are regrets that arise out of making the wrong decision at the wrong time, in the wrong place, simply making wrong choices. And Together tonight, if we pray for one another, we should have this prayer so that when we go from the presence of God and go to live our lives in the world in which we live, whatever God has sent us to do so, that we will know the decisions that we should take 
in everyday living. And of course, there will be lessons to be learned from our mistakes, but the importance of raising in our lives these very positive things that, that, that God wants us to do and wants us to be engaged in. A prayer for their development, that their love will grow in knowledge and in the ability to make the right choices. That brings me naturally into the second point, which is his prayer for their decision-making. So that, in verse 10, you may approve what is excellent. There's a process through which they're going to be engaged with everything that happens around them. In, in, in Philippi, as a, as a colony of Rome, they are going to be looking at issues every day. And the word that, that Paul uses here to, to approve what is excellent, its basic idea is to look at something and see if it is what it seems to be. And it's a process through which there is the examination of a particular thing to prove its genuineness and so to approve it. The outcome of, of this process is examination that leads to approving something. And the whole idea of, of the word is, is looking for a positive outcome. In other words, when they are going out there to make their decisions, they are going to examine what is before them and on the basis of that examination to approve what is the right thing to do. And here there is the approval of what is excellent. The things that are most important, the things that are of greater value. It's separating out every issue of life that we meet with and it's making a decision where we choose the things that are excellent. The things that in God's eyes are superior to everything else and the superior things that enable our Christian living and that enable us to, to go forward as those who do stand up and stand out as those who are the people of God. And when we come to, to think of the things that are excellent, we come to think not of the decisions, as I said earlier, between right and wrong. Paul knows they're making the right choices in that area. But it is with regard to the things that perhaps we don't think matter, or everyday things, to be able to choose what happens tomorrow in life, to choose the things that will advance and progress our faith. The things that are essential for our walking in the Christian life, the things that are essential for living out our lives faithfully devoted to Christ. It is embracing the things that are indifferent in themselves, but that we know will advance our life of faith in the gospel. 
And that is so often where we fail. That in our everyday lives, we make choices about things that aren't wrong in themselves. We choose them. And we discover later that because of making that choice, it led us down a road which took us away from God and away from our devotion to God. There was nothing wrong with the thing of itself, but because we didn't choose it in the context of of our knowledge of God and didn't let our minds be informed by the truth of the gospel, we were led off on a path that we were persuaded was right until we came to a place where, where God stopped us and reminded us of the trail that we had left behind and that trail that we are left behind away from him because we made the wrong choice. It may be a career choice. It may be a simple relocation choice. It may be something very simple in our everyday lives, but they are the things that define who we are and that determine where we go and what happens in our relationship with God. The things that are excellent. And so for, for, for yourself tonight, what are the priorities in, in the way in which you make everyday choices? Paul gives his own example later on, where he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. And he did that for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Everything he counted as loss. And of course he's referring to to the things of life. He left them all behind so that he might gain Christ and be found in him. And that points us to the direction of of showing that, that in all our decision making, the priority is Will this advance my relationship with my Savior? Will this enable me to grow in my faith? Will it bring me along the path that God has set out for his people? And they are decisions that we make prayerfully. And we pray for each other as we make these decisions. But we are the ones in our own lives who have to make that decision for ourselves. And even tonight we have a decision to make with all the claims of the gospel upon us. Do we choose the excellent thing that's above everything else? Do we live a life turned away from sin? Yes, of course we need to do that. But do we live a life where, like Paul, We count everything as loss that we may gain Christ. And that decision-making has a final result. He's praying as he always does, not just with the moment in mind, but with the future in mind as well. And with regard to the way in which they are making these choices, It is so that you be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He sees everything in the light of the 
revelation of the glory of Christ, the brightness of the shining of the sun, who will come as the son of righteousness and his glory will be such that, that the, his enemies will want to flee away from him. His glory will be such that his people will be attracted to him for that day of glory, for that day of shining. He wants them to make the right choices so that they will be pure and blameless. Pure in the sense in which he is writing, held up by the sunlight, shown to be sincere and, and without spot or blemish. The, the, the glory of, of the sun in Philippi, where they would examine their, 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 their crockery before the brightness of the sun and see if there were any cracks in it, that they would dispose of it because it wasn't genuine, it wasn't perfect. And so he wants them to, to be able to stand before the glory of Christ on, on the return of Christ and to be, in that sense, pure, sincere and, and without fault. Uh, and along with that, to be, to be blameless in that very same moment. To be blameless in the sense of not having stumbled or fallen not having made the wrong choices which led to stumbling themselves and causing others to stumble also. It's a level of acceptance before God that speaks of, of the, the high point of, of the devoted people of God, that, that this is the, the standard for which Paul is praying for them sincere, able to stand to the glory of the brightness of the coming of the Son of God and to, to appear before him as, as a person that has not stumbled and fallen away from the faith but instead has stood the test and has remained loyal and faithful to their calling and to, who have stood above the rest in the sense of Choosing always the excellent things and arriving in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ, to be received and to be acknowledged as sincere and blameless before him. And when he is praying that for them, it's their inspiration to seek the excellent things. Because if we have the, the grace of God in our hearts, then, then we, we look to appear before the throne of the Lord Jesus uh, at his return at the end of time. And when we appear there, we don't want to, to appear there as those who are insincere, as those who have stumbled and fallen. And we don't want one another to appear in that way either. And so it, it is our prayer together that we will be kept sincere in, in our journey, in our faith with the Lord Jesus. And instead of being the means of, of causing others to fall and to stumble, to be the means of, of lifting others up and praying for them and encouraging them so that they will themselves join in this, on the highway of God who brings his people home into his near presence. And so the thought of going to 
the throne room of, of Jesus Christ. It's not raised by, by Paul as a threat to them. It's raised as an encouragement, as an inspiration that they will think of that day when they're making their choices every day. And if, they, if their choices are informed by the knowledge that they have of the return of Christ, then that will ensure that they will arrive in his presence in this way. Do we not tonight pray that prayer for each other? That all of us will be before the throne of Christ and that we will be there as those who stand the test of standing before him and are not condemned and any voice or or a suggestion of condemnation is silenced because by the grace of God in our decision making we arrived and arrived there without the stain of falling or the stain of causing others to fall and to the glory of God we find ourselves there. A prayer for decision making in everyday life that will ensure that we will be accepted at the throne of Christ at the end of time. And that leads to our final point, which is that there is a prayer for their distinction. They are going to stand out at the end of time. When they are blameless and when they are pure, that you are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. They have a capacity for more. They have a capacity for for filling up. The ship that is not fully manned has capacity for more manpower. There's a filling up, and in their lives there is that need for a filling up and the need for for filling up the capacity that they have to do better is in the whole area of of the way in which they, they live their lives in the world. It is filled with the fruit of righteousness. He is looking at a harvest in their experience. He is looking at a harvest with crops that come from righteousness. And righteousness in the New Testament, we can understand it in two ways. We are, first of all, justified by faith. There is that righteousness which is ours by believing in Christ and his righteousness becoming ours. And God gives us that standing. We are justified by faith. And Paul prays in chapter 3 that he may be found in him without his own righteousness, which is from the law, but the righteousness which comes by faith. It's the righteousness of our standing. And God gives that to us, and we can never lose that. It's forever our privilege to enjoy. But there is also righteousness in the sense of the way in which we conduct our own lives and the way in which we live in the light of the law of God and the way in which our morals and our ethics are in line 
with what the Word of God says. And they are to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. In other words, the love which is growing through the knowledge of, of, of the Lord Jesus and of God is a love now which works out in their lives and produces fruit in their lives. It produces a life that's conformed to the law of God and to the word of God. It produces a life that, that loves the law of God and that desires to, to walk in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus. And in Hebrews 10, we have these words of Psalm 40 given to the Lord Jesus himself. I delight to do your will, O my God. It's the fruit that comes from our standing in Christ and from our union with Christ. And he qualifies it here by in, these, in these terms. It is the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. They have no fruit they have no life without Jesus Christ. They have no fruit without Jesus Christ. Everything comes through him, from him, and because of him. And that comes to the, to the essence of our relationship with the Lord Jesus, to our union with him. If, if the union has been established, there will be that fruit-bearing, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. There will be that life that is changed in every way so that there are the branches and the fruit of, of, of the Spirit of God in our hearts and in our lives. And as he prays for them to be filled up with the fruit of righteousness, that does remind us that there is space, there is capacity for more. But he wants them to arrive in the harvest of the judgment of God, to be heavy and full with the fruit of the Spirit, with a life that is devoted to God. And from here onwards, he will want them to, to embrace all of that as, as they journey on. Let this knowledge through which your love is going impact upon your lives and let that be seen in the way in which you live a life that's different to the Roman culture that belongs to your heavenly citizenship and that proves that you are the children of the heavenly kingdom. And that to the glory and praise of God. Which is ultimately what everything is for. To make the name of God greater. Not that we can do that because his name is great. But to give proper recognition to him. And for his glory to be seen in the way in which we are presented before the throne of Christ in this fruitful way at the harvest of the world. To the glory and to the very praise of God. To the way in which he will approve and he will sanction and he will give the public mark of his approval and of his esteem. And when it comes to the glory and praise of God, the glory belongs to him. The praise belongs to him also. But there is also the praise of God that arises out of our hearts 
in reaching out and in letting our love explode in, in this moment of glory in, in the praising of God. And when he is seeking that that will be the case, he is doing so very conscious of the fact that in chapter 3 there are those who have confidence in the flesh. They have confidence in who they are and what they are and where they have come from. They are the Judaizers. They are, they are those who, who want to circumcise those who are the Christians in Philippi. They have confidence in who they are. And it's like the, the people in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 6. They are people called hypocrites by, by Jesus who, who love to stand on street corners and to do what they're doing for the praise of others, for the praise of other people. And Jesus says they have the reward, they have it in that moment because they are doing things for their own praise and for their own glory. And so for them, they are going to be on their guard against such influences that will lead them to have such confidence in what they have done or who they are, or where they have come from, but that instead they will journey on and they will come into the presence of Christ as those who have trusted in him alone and as those who have understood at every step of life's way that no matter how much they knew about God, no matter how much they knew about the word of God, no matter how much they knew the people of God, that that was nothing, that it was all based upon their faith in Christ Jesus and their God's revelation in him and the way in which they embraced that and the way in which because of that embrace they made the right decisions along life's way by the grace of God but also recognizing that these decisions themselves were empowered by the Spirit of God so that he is the one to whom all of the glory belongs. And so for ourselves this evening Let's go and pray this prayer for each other. Let's let our love be, be more than feelings. Let's let our love develop into the knowledge of God so that from there we may live our lives and make our choices. And let's do so remembering that the day of the glory of Christ is coming when we will have to stand in, in the brightness of that glory and when we want together to be recognized as, as genuine the children of God when he gathers his people with him and to ensure that when we do arrive on that day we haven't stumbled ourselves, we haven't caused others to stumble but that we have been kept sincere and faithful on our journey to him to the glory of his great name. May God bless his word to us and may help us to pray that prayer for one another. Let us join together in prayer. Most gracious God, we rejoice in you as the great God who does begin a good work. The God who has given to us your word and who has given to us your spirit and who has given to us faith and love and hope and praying tonight together that you will cause all of these ingredients of your grace in our hearts and lives to work as they should, uh, to be oiled by uh, the Spirit of God and uh, working in such a way as to 
work together in our lives that we may grow into faith and grow up in faith and mature in our faith and have that right standing before you from which flows a life that is conforming to your word and to your will and a life that displays in that way that we do belong to you and a life that awaits with expectation for the day in which you will acknowledge your people publicly and welcome them in to the glory of your presence forevermore. So bless your word to us, we pray, and have mercy we do ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.